Tonight's reading is Psalm 15, the whole chapter. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury and does not accept the bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. It is a great question to ask, what must I do in order to be saved? It is another great question to ask, to say, how should a saved person live? Note that they're not necessarily the same question. But note that they both have the same object, and that is living and obeying the Lord the way that He wants us to live. I want you to look at Psalm 15, and I want you to think about blameless living this evening. We might also entitle this, Living with Integrity. If I were to ask you what integrity is, I might get a number of answers. The uh, word character is also a, a synonym for it. It means, well, as we tell our young people, character is what you do when nobody sees. The person you are when all it is that is just you alone with your God. What types of things do you do? What types of things do you look at? How do you behave when it's just you and, of course, the Lord who is in every place? The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over the good and over the evil, Psalm, or Proverbs 15 and verse 3. When we talk about blameless living, we're not necessarily dealing with the question of what must I do to be saved, but more with the idea of how should a saved person live? And as we look at Psalm 15 this evening, I want you to understand something about this. You see, the Jews, as David writes this, the Jews over time developed the system of theology where it is that they counted up all throughout the law and through the prophets. How many commands does God want us to keep? How many commands do I need to keep as a person uh, who's trying to please God? How many commands do I need to keep in order to be a righteous person? And as Jews counted up the amount of commands that were listed there in the Old Testament. You know how many they came up with? 613. And they said, if we keep all 613 of these commandments, God says we're righteous. What's interesting is, is that when you get over to the New Testament and you find out about how it is that man is being made righteous, you go to a book of like Romans, and you see Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, for the grace of God, or excuse me, uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's the salvation. And then he goes on to quote a passage from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. The just or the righteous shall live by faith. Only one command for us, live by faith. What does that look like? Look at your Bible in Psalm 15. And I want you to notice a couple of things about this this evening. And hopefully these will be helpful to us as we ask the question, how should a blameless, how should a person of integrity live their lives? 
I've done this in a little bit different style. You don't have the main points listed here, but if you've got your sermon outline sheet, you may find it help to jot some of these down together. Or maybe it is that you were jot down the main points as I give them and then uh, circle some things maybe in your Bible as you go along to help you remember what this psalm is all about. This psalm is all about blameless living. Note first, we got to have, folks, the right concern. Blameless living, living with integrity, is all about having the right concern. The psalmist asked two questions right here at the very beginning. Lord, who may abide in your, Jeff said, sanctuary, words tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Again, considering the aspect of who wrote this, David, you remember David reigned for 40 years in Israel. The first seven of his years that he reigned, he reigned at Hebron. Until it was that he decided Jerusalem was a city that was more centrally located, as far as power goes, as far as fortification goes, it seemed like a better choice for a capital city. And as it was, as he uh, uh, conquered that city in 2 Samuel, and as it is, as he moved his the tabernacle to Jerusalem, can you imagine David, though righteous, David had no ability of his own to enter into the tabernacle proper, into the holy place and into the most holy place. He was not of that tribe. And the obvious answer is, who's going to dwell in your holy hill, O oh God? Who's going, to, uh, who's going to abide in your sanctuary or in your tabernacle? The obvious answer for the Old Testament people was, well, it's the priests. But can you imagine David in his home there in Jerusalem, looking up and seeing the court of the tabernacle and thinking deeply about, Lord, if it was that I could just dwell in that presence, what would it take for me to be there continually? What would it be like to dwell in the presence of God all the time? He thought about this on more than one occasion. You know why? You get over to the pastoral psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. How does that psalm end in verse 6? And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David says, what kind of character, what's the integrity look like of a person who's going to make his continual and his continual dwelling with the Lord of hosts? Brothers and sisters, I think we need to think more often and more frequently about heaven. We need to stop and really consider well the way that John is revealed that picture in Revelation 21 and 22 about that pearly city, about the gates and about the beauty of it, and about who's there and about how it is that God is going to dwell with us and how God is going to wipe away every tear. And like David, we need to spend more time asking the question, God, what's the integrity of a person? How is it that he can live blamelessly so that he can be with you, God, all for all time? We need to think more about heaven and have the right concern. How can I enjoy lasting fellowship with God? Here's the answer. What type of character does it take? And you'll note that here are a number of what we would call couplets. These are statements that are parallel. They have something to do with one another. And there's a number of them here as we look at a person with, point number two, the right character, verses two to five. Verses two to five, what type of person is going to dwell with God? It's going to be a person with the right character. Note what he's going to talk about first, how he walks. Verse two. Couplet number one, he who walks uprightly, blameless, to live in God's path according to God's truth. It indicates a person who is sound, who is whole, who is healthy. 
It's a person who doesn't change his character. That is, he's not one person from Monday morning all the way till Saturday night and then puts on his Sunday morning appearance and comes in and behaves in an entirely different manner. That was a problem throughout Israel, you remember? And some of the minor prophets, as uh, we've been studying over the last year and, uh, and certainly uh, this quarter, you find people that would, uh, they would extort their neighbors, they would push down the poor, and they would mistreat the others, and then they would come and they would bring their sacrifices to God as if nothing was wrong that there was no integrity or no character issue. I'm sure nobody has a problem like that today, of course, but you understand that this was certainly applicable as far as they, they went. And note, works righteousness. He practices. He's doing the right thing. Works righteousness. We don't necessarily think too much about the word righteous, but if you want a quick definition of it, it would be being in step with God. Here's God setting the pace. Here's God setting the step and says, I want you to walk righteously. What does that mean? I'm going to walk in step with God every single day of my life. And note this great example of these two parallel couplets. He essentially saying the same thing two different ways, but the second part adds something to the first part, doesn't it? Follow the verbs. You have he who walks uprightly, but then he who works righteousness. There's a difference between this person who is walking in an upright character and a person who's also pursuing the right things. You see, it's not just a matter of walking uprightly. It's a matter of doing what God wants him to do. I'm reminded of James 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I'm reminded in the same book, James chapter 2, verse 14 to 7. Faith without works is dead. And you understand that walking uprightly has something to do with dwelling with God. Note this, number two, second couplet. Here's a person who speaks the truth in his heart and does not backbite with his tongue. This has to do with how the person speaks. Interestingly enough, James chapter 3, the next chapter in which uh, the book quoted, deals with the tongue extensively, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. What does he say? He speaks the truth in his heart. You don't want to know that this person is not just telling you what you want to hear. You want to know that this person is not going to schmooze you. You ever been schmoozed before? That's a fun word to say. You ever been schmoozed? Had somebody just tell you something for the sake of flattery? To have, tell something for, uh, for the sake to, to gain an advantage of you? Or to make you feel a certain way so that they can do something that's self-centered, selfish? They're not doing that. Ephesians 4, verse 25 says, Put away lying. Let every one of you speak truth with his neighbor. When you find somebody that habitually tells lies, but then they become a Christian. You know, lies shouldn't be the habitual, the habitual thing that they do every single day anymore. Because when they become a Christian, now it is that they're going to sanctify their tongue for the glory of God. And it should be when they find themselves stopping and catching themselves in the lie to stop and say, you know what, that's not right. I've got to tell you the truth. I've got to speak the truth. And as you train your tongue in the habit of speaking truth, it is that you're investing in your character and in your integrity. Ephesians 4 verse 25. Meaning here is bigger. This is a person who's trustworthy. It's somebody that you can count on. What he doesn't say, he's not a slander of others. He doesn't gossip. He doesn't criticize. He doesn't 
damage with his tongue other people. Isn't it true that the Bible warns us about gossip and about criticism? And yet in our day and time, isn't it easier to gossip and to criticize? It seems like more than ever. People that will go on social media and bash the president or bash Congress or bash their neighbor or maybe passive aggressively try and say, I hate it when some people do this. Person of integrity is not going to do that. They're going to, if they have a problem with an individual, especially Christian or especially somebody, to say, listen, I, I feel this way. You made me feel this way and I don't want to take it out in the wrong manner. It's how you use your tongue. It's how you speak. Note number three. What is the right character is how he treats his neighbor, how he treats others in conduct. Couplet number three, verse three, much in common with number two and number three, speaking truth, not slandering. Here's somebody that's not actively going to pursue evil to his neighbor. His words match his actions. His actions match his words. He does no evil to his neighbor. He's not going to try and destroy his friend or his enemy. He's going to treat them well. Romans 12, verses 19 through 21, talks about the fact that you don't do evil to repay evil. Don't repay evil for evil, but repay evil for good. That's the way this person's going to behave. Nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, a slur. You know what? It occurs to me that that might be a justified reproach. And yet, here's somebody who's going to say, you know what? He did that? That doesn't necessarily sound like him. You know what? He did that? Well, it's, it's not going to be something I'm going to hold over his head or something I'm going to bear a grudge against him for. I'm going to treat him the way that he needs to be treated. He doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. He's not going to go fly off the handle and vent towards somebody. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, we talked about it a little bit this morning. Love thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. What's he talking about? He's talking about a life that's lived in integrity. Look at number four, how he looks at others. 4b, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. You see the couplet? Here's one set in the negative, and here's another one set in the positive. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. This is not so much how we treat them, but how we are in regards to them. This has to do with values. You know, we ask our young people sometimes, who, who are your role models? Who are the people that you really looked up to? Who are the ones that you, you really want to be like? And sometimes it is that you find them looking up to people that really don't need to be looked up to. Because of their character and because of their, their integrity, because of their manner of life, you look at it and you say, well, they may be excelling in this one sport, but look at the product of their life. Look at the fruit of what their life is producing. Look at how they treat their relationships. How many marriages have they had? How, how often have they, have they been accused of different, certain things? And so we don't necessarily look at it from that perspective, but we look at it from terms of saying, well, they're vile, but you know what? They're talented. That's not a good role model. It's not a good role model. He honors those who fear the Lord. You want somebody to look up to? You need to look up to people that cultivate the right kind of character and integrity. And you know what? Those people are very, very easy to spot. Looking up and seeing those who are committed to pleasing the Lord and encouraging them and showing this esteem for them and reverence to, to them and how we talk about them. You know, I'm mindful of an elder. 
First Timothy chapter 3, and you look at all those different qualifications for a man who qualifies for the work of an elder, or maybe the ones as uh, we talked about this morning, and as we pointed seven new deacons, qualifications for deacons down in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And you look at those admirable, notable, esteemable qualities, and you say you want a person who's God's man, you want a person who's worthy of being looked up to. You ought to look at a person like that who's both the same on the inside as he has on the outside, a man who's the same Sunday morning as he is every single other day of the week. There's a danger in looking at people who are despised or that ought to be despised, whose character is deplorable, and saying, you know what, I'm going to follow that person. And instead we need to look at people that we can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Number next, how his eyes look at others but how he treats his commitments. Note this one. This was a simple couplet, but it's a divided form, and you could flesh it out in a fuller form. He who swears and keeps it. He who is faithful even when it hurts himself. You know what? I don't, <laughs> I don't have any problem keeping a commitment whenever it's in my own interest to do so. You know, um, the bank calls and they say, listen, you know, it's the old monopoly trick. We uh, bank error in your favor, collect $50. Okay, I'll be there first thing Monday morning. You know what? When it's in my personal interest, I don't have a problem keeping a commitment and saying, yes, I'll be there first thing Monday morning. Whenever it is, it doesn't necessarily benefit me. Sometimes it is that those commitments can kind of fall by the wayside. What Jesus talked about and talking about a person who's faithful in little will be faithful in much. As Jesus mentions in here on this earth, talking to uh, his disciples in the, in the Sermon on the Mount and saying, listen, don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by earth. I want you to be people of integrity. You know what a person of integrity does? He lets his yes be yes. He lets his no be no. If I have to become a person that has to swear by all that's holy, then I'm going to keep my commitment before somebody's going to trust me with that. The question has to be asked, how has my integrity been affected based upon the fact that somebody's got to make me do that before they understand that I'm going to keep my word? It ought to be that how a person keeps their word and says, I will do this even if it hurts me. I'm going to keep this commitment to you. I'm going to honor my word. Even if it is, it costs me my livelihood. I'm going to treat that commitment as sacred because my word is my bond. You know, in the condemnation of the Pharisees, Matthew 23, verses 16 to 22, he talks about them saying, well, he who swears by the temple, it's nothing. But he swears by the gold of the temple. Well, now he's obligated to keep it. Dealing with these people, Jesus continually looked at their hearts of who they were on the inside and said, listen, you're not behaving as people of integrity and character. You want to know what kind of person pleases the Lord? Here's a person who even if he swears, he's going to keep it. And even if it is that he's going to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to have to break that, he's not going to change. Even if it is that it's going to hurt him financially or, or socially, He's not going to change that, that the commitment. Last one that he says, how he uses his money. Note how we've gone from the gamut of life here just in three verses, four verses. How he walks, verse 2. 
how he speaks, the end of verse 2, how he treats others' conducts, how he looks at others, verse 4, how he treats his commitments, and now how he uses his money. He who does not put out his hand, his money at usury. Here's a person who greed is going to eclipse justice. We're not talking about going into debt, but we're talking about somebody who's going to charge somebody interest for the purpose of extortion and wanting to take advantage of somebody else because you're greedy, because you like money. Nor does he take up a bribe against the innocent. Now, instead of greed before justice, now you've got greed before people. Greed before people. Again, against offense is also against justice, but here's the person who uses his money wrongfully. James chapter 5, in a condemnation of the rich, James mentions chapter 5 and verse 4, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And it may be that you're a greedy person at, at your heart, and you want to get more and get more, and you're constantly breaking commandments and breaking uh, promises because it is that you're so consumed and so occupied with gaining more and doing more and having more. The people suffer. The relationships suffer. But here's a person that manages his money rightly. Here's a man who was walking in integrity with regard to his financial commitments. Brothers and sisters, we've got to be careful how we use our money and how we treat our money. Absolutely, our money gives us options, but it should never be seen as the end of our existence. Your life is so much more than the pursuit of material gain. And your life is so much more in trying to live in integrity than what God says is materially going to pass away and materially going to burn up. It's all going to burn one day. We should never discount greed over people or greed over justice. What is the psalmist's conclusion? He's asked the right question, the right concern. He's talked about the right character, verses 2 through 5. And as he concludes, I want you to note how this book ends with the very beginning. Here's the right conclusion. Notice all of this is in reference to verse 1 and answering the question, Who may abide in your sanctuary? Who may dwell in your holy hill? This is the portrait of one who pleases God. These are the characteristics and virtues God wants to see in you. So here is the conclusion that he draws. One who does these things. Note action, behavior, integrity, blamelessness. All of these things have an effect on your right relationship with God. One who does these things shall never be moved. One version says we'll never be shaken. The idea is a violent shaking. This is the conclusion to the opening question, who may abide in your holy hill? You do these things, you can dwell with God in his holy hill, and nothing shall ever shake you out of it. You will be a firmly planted person. Or as Jesus would say, he who hears these sayings of mine and does them will be likened to a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and that house stood firm because it was founded on the rock. He who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be likened to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and that house fell, and great was its fall. The question comes to us, how are we living our lives? Are we people who are blamelessly living? 
Are we people who are living with integrity and character? If not, why not? We are saved from sin, but we are saved to live holy lives. That's our purpose, to live holy, blameless lives of integrity. Does that sound like you this evening? Sound like me? We ought to do some soul searching to find out if it is that we answer those questions in the way that pleases God. Get your songbooks out, please. Thank you for your kind attention. I hope it is that the lesson has blessed you this evening, and I hope it is that given us all pause thinking about how it is we can be more holy in our character. We're going to sing a song of invitation this evening, and if there's any need that you have, if there's any request that you'd like to make of us, if there's any way that we can serve you, won't you make that known as we stand and sing our invitation song?